Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University. Joining us today is Dr. Brian Cotton, Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Texas in Houston. Dr. Cotton has expertise and original research in a wide variety of topics within trauma and critical care surgery. Today, we are going to speak with him regarding the causes and diagnosis of coagulopathy following trauma. In this discussion, we will review the role of thrombolastography for this diagnosis, and I'd like to also refer listeners to TraumaCast number six, which was a focused discussion with Dr. Jeffrey Kashuk on the role of TEG in the overall management of the trauma patient. Welcome again, Dr. Cotton. Thank you, Dr. Sarani. Let's start by asking you to review the underlying reason for coagulopathy following trauma. What causes it? You know, traditionally we thought that coagulopathy of trauma was a late phenomenon, or at least a delayed phenomenon, one of which occurred late in the operating room, which was why Rotundo and Schwab and, and others before them started off with damage control surgery to avoid or attenuate this coagulopathy. And a lot of the textbooks that we still read will have cartoons, diagrams, showing that coagulopathy, a lot of it being part of this vicious cycle that they referred to it. But as we've started to look and focus more and more, we've noted that the coagulopathy of trauma that really occurs, or at least what's now called the acute coagulopathy of trauma or acute traumatic coagulopathy, is a very early phenomenon. There's actually some data out of France where they are drawing blood levels from the scene showing evidence of deficiencies in multiple factors. There's evidence from Karen Brohe, Sarah Niles, and Jana McLeod showing that on arrival to trauma centers, both civilian and military, that the, uh, the occurrence uh, of coagulopathy of trauma is between 24 and 38 uh, percent. The sicker you are, the more shock, the more anatomic insult you've sustained, the higher the incidence of coagulopathy in these patients. So it's, it's, it is a multimodal thing, and it's a lot earlier than we thought. So big risk factors, uh, again, large tissue injury, so measured in ISS, uh, shock measured in base deficit and hypotension, profound hypotension, as well as uh, the resuscitative fluids that we utilize, more than uh, a couple of liters of fluid in the field being obviously associated with acute coagulopathy of trauma. And when they are present, they're also additive. So one without the other can't occur, but when they're both together, uh, the incidence being much, much higher. So you make the assumption that the severely injured uh, trauma patient is coagulopathic on arrival regardless of how much fluid they receive. You don't think this is dilutional? I, I think the fluids, and I think what we've seen is that that is a risk factor for it. But even with no fluids, even from scene, again, like we talked about that in one uh, French paper, from the scene, people are already starting to get coagulopathic. And that goes back to part of just some of the coagulopathy that occurs from the tissue injury and the shock state itself that elicits and uh, promotes some of this coagulopathy. So aside from the obvious question that coagulopathy begets hemorrhage, obviously, what, why does it matter? Is there any mortality ramifications from the coagulopathy itself? Depending on what paper you look at, but uniformly across those papers, the coagulopathy when present on arrival, before anything has been undertaken from a resuscitative standpoint, leveling out injury severity and everything else, 
If you are coagulopathic on arrival, your mortality goes up dramatically, whether it's a five-fold increase in all comers, whether it's a doubling in those needing a massive transfusion. The coagulopathy, when present, imparts a significant increase in mortality among all trauma patients. So it's there. It matters. How does one go about diagnosing it? So the, you know, the coagulopathy trauma and our patients that end up getting massive transfusions, I would say they're one and the same, but they are very, it's much more frequent. Uh, 70% or more of our massive transfusion patients are coagulopathic. So a couple of ways to do it. You know, one, you can look at scoring systems that are predicting coagulopathy. Uh, you can look at scoring systems that predict a massive transfusion of product and use that as a surrogate. Uh, for a coagulopathy of trauma, or you could actually use testing. Uh, testing obviously having the challenges of timing, of delays in its uh, uh, workings, and some of the limitations and constraints of the traditional tests uh, that are out there, PT, PTT, INR, which were never meant, and if you go back and look at their design, never meant to diagnose, treat, or guide coagulopathy of trauma. They were, they were developed to follow INR for warfarin and heparin PTT. So getting a little bit more into this, how does one actually determine which of the uh, trauma patients is coagulopathic? How severely injured do you have to be to be coagulopathic? How do you, how do you pick it up? You know, it, so it goes up uh, with, so, the, you know, Sarah Niles and, and Karen Brohe both have uh, nice papers on this uh, out in the last five, uh, six years showing that as the ISS goes up, your evidence, your, your incidence of coagulopathy goes up. And as your base deficit worsens, your incidence goes up. I think what you've got to do is you've got to look at your, you know, your highest level trauma activations. Your one showing up with shock, with significant evidence of tissue injury, not that you're going to perform an ISS in the trauma bay, but just looking at just gross physiology of your highest level trauma activations and assume that at least one out of four, at least one out of four of these patients is going to have evidence of coagulopathy, of trauma, and just being aggressive and assuming that they all have coagulopathy trauma from from the from the get go, and customizing one your workup and diagnosis uh, arms, as well as how you resuscitate these patients. And do we have evidence that if you do pick up the coagulopathy and treat it, you can overcome this mortality detriment that is due to the coagulopathy? Yeah, early correction of the coagulopathy of trauma, early action on patients that are in hemorrhagic shock is associated with improved outcomes. And I think we could argue ratios, argue formulas and cocktails, but what really comes down to it is the early identification and the early action on it. J simply acting on it in the emergency department versus rushing them to the operating room and then going, aha, they're coagulopathic, I have to do something. Just that recognition delay is associated with a threefold increase in mortality. And so at your institution, what is it that you do to pick up on these people as far as the diagnosis goes? So from a diagnostic standpoint, we have started obtaining TEG or thromboelastography, uh, specifically the rapid thromboelastography, on admission in all of our major trauma activations. We see about 6,000 a year. We don't do 6,000 TEGs on admission, but what we do is a closer to 1,500 to 2,000 for those highest level trauma activations that have already gone through that screening triage of being, quote, sick. 
and all of those will have an admission tag. We're slowly trying to move that actually up to the forefront and perhaps even obtaining, while not running the tag on the helicopter, maybe obtaining that specimen on the helicopter so we have an idea on admission exactly where to go. Because unfortunately, as, as you know, the sickest patients, a lot of these other things are delayed. You know, the labs are delayed because the person obtaining that stick for that lab or running that lab over to your stat lab is the same person that might be getting an IV, hanging blood, getting your chest tube set up. So the sickest of the sick will have inherent delays. So the quicker you can get a specimen obtained and either Again, use TAG, Rapid TAG, Rotem, whatever point of care, very forward-thinking for an available test you can have, I think is critical. So as soon as they hit the door at our facility, the first sample that comes out is a type and screen. The very second sample is a sample for Rapid TAG, and they go and run immediately. And these are for your most severely injured as, de as defined by your triage criteria, as Correct. defined by the doctor eyeballing the patient? No, these are by triage criteria. These are these are our code, th what we call code three trauma activations. Some people call them level ones, code ones, alphas, uh, code yellows. So, so at some sense, you're going to over triage the people who get a tag, We're but it's a blood absolutely, test. Absolutely. Absolutely over triaging some of these patients. But we are... We are but we are, again, shying away from other labs and really utilizing this whole blood test as apart from a PT, PTTINR, where you're spinning it down, just looking at the plasma component to it. There's so much going on that's not being tested when you just take off and just look at the plasma that I think these whole blood assays, Rotem, TAG, and others that I'm sure that are in the pipeline uh, provide for you. So just to clarify that, that means that your highest level activation that gets the tag does not get a PT-PTT INR. That is correct. Uh, beginning in April uh, of this year, 2012, we began in our institution no longer getting platelet count PT, PTT, INR, and fibrinogen on arrival. These tests uh, were removed from our what we called our Code 3 trauma panel, and we are only getting a tag from a coagulation profile. We're still getting a hemoglobin. Uh, still getting chemistries, but we are, have abandoned the other portions of the coagulation profile. Subsequent in their hospital care, let's say five hours in, 12 hours in, 24 hours in, are you going back to conventional coagulation testing or are you just sticking with the TAG? No, we're sticking with the TAG uh, throughout. the. You know, We occasionally will have the interventional radiology attending that says, hey, I, I want an INR before I stick them. Uh, at, we will try to discuss with them and try to guide them that the TAG looks normal uh, and that we don't think we need that. But if we need the eye, uh, interventional radiology procedure, uh, we will uh, often just go ahead and get it and, and just to help, you know, again, patient care and facilitate that. Um, with respect to warfarin patients that come in, uh, we do not think that they need it. But at the same time, we, there's not a very well-developed tag algorithm on how to titrate uh, warfarin. And, and we know that INR was developed specifically for that. So we will use INR in those patients. But on admission, the only thing, even with a Coumadin or warfarin patient, the only thing they will get is that rapid tech. You've described one scoring system, the ABC scoring system, for prediction of uh, the need for massive transfusion. There are other scoring systems. There's the TASH system. There's the McLaughlin. There's a bunch of them. Um, is TEG can TAG be used to determine the need for massive transfusion? It absolutely can. I think the benefit of some of those scoring systems that are out there, um, whichever one you look at, if, if you use them and, and can use them in the sense that they were developed, uh, can get you an immediate, and I'm talking about during the primary. Again, that was part of the whole ABC score of getting it done during the ABCs, during the primary survey. 
Uh, the tag, even as fast as it might be on the rapid tag, still has a little bit of delays. But every component on there we've evaluated, the majority of them are able to predict massive transfusion. And I'm not talking about 10 units in 24 hours. I'm talking about how much you're going to get in the next hour, two hours, three hours, how much of those units of plasma, red cells, platelets, crown precipitate, how much you're going to get of those products. I think it's better expressed with TAG. Now, the ABCs, the TASHs, those may be the alarms that set things off and send for that first cooler and get your massive transfusion protocol rolling. But when it comes down to it guiding and predicting after that first uh, phase, I think that's where the TAG and other similar technologies will help guide and or predict uh, the next few hours of, of care of that patient. So let's talk about that a little bit. And, and I think the key word you used there was guide. The TAG can be used both to diagnose coagulopathy, predict the need for massive transfusion, and also to then guide the actual massive transfusion strategy. Just as a review, how do you use TAG to determine who gets FFP, cryo, platelets, transexamic acid, whatever? So there's actually uh, a nice guide uh, that we have in uh, in our in a paper that just came out in the Housel Surgery this fall uh, with uh, my colleague John Holcomb, the first author, I'm the senior author on that. It was presented at American Surgical, and we have in Table 7 there a very nice uh, cut points, and we've actually taken that and putting that onto the back of a laminated card for our residents as a, as a general guide for how we treat them. So the proximal values of that tag are the protein interactions. They're the, they're the serine protein uh, interactions, proteases, and how things are managed. They're correlating loosely with PT, PTT, and INR. So my, my ACT on the rapid tag, my R time, those are the values when they are delayed, abnormal. I'm thinking about plasma resuscitation and replacement. When I see the K and the alpha, which are more the kinetics of the clot formation, the speed at which the clot is being formed, that gets back more into a fibrinogen interaction. And especially in cases where the ACT and R are normal, that's where I'm thinking about solely giving fibrinogen or in cases where we don't have fibrinogen concentrates to replace, which is most U.S. trauma centers, cryoprecipitate. Then you start getting into the maximal amplitude, the clot strength overall. And with that ab being abnormal, rather than looking at a platelet count, we're thinking about platelet transfusions, plus or minus cryoprecipitate, depending on how that angle looks. So it's not, even though we have some nice cut points in that table seven, uh, there's some obvious overlap with the coagulation. It's not nice and clean. And then the final value that comes back, and this is the most critical one, uh, to follow up on because, again, it, it is delayed with respect to the other portions of that tag tracing is the lysis, whether it's the EPL value or the LY30 value. Uh, those are just different co uh, components representations. Different groups use different ones. We use LY30. I think the Denver group uh, prefers the EPL uh, value of the lysis. That's when you're thinking about tranexamic acid or aminocaproic acid and acting on them with antifibrinolytics. Thus far, we've discussed uh, use of TAG for diagnosis of hypocoagulability. And since you're here, we might as well finish off the discussion by at least addressing use of TAG for hypercoagulability. It's a little bit of an overlap with what uh, the discussion I had with Dr. Kashuk about a year ago. But uh, are you guys using it at all to diagnose hypercoagulability? We are. And I would actually say that, in my opinion, I am more convinced with TAG use guiding or at least being an alarm for hypercoagulability than I am for hypo. I mean, again, I believe it and I practice uh, the, the tag 
uh, tracings and, and, and use that to guide our resuscitation with respect to hypocoagulability. But I think our group in general has been more impressed with how how predictive the hypercoagulable profile on a TEG uh, relates to venous thromboembolic events. And we started that looking at multiple papers. One, the first uh, we had heard of it was when we were developing our TEG program at, at UT Houston Memorial Hermann. And then we started looking at the data that was out there, uh, both in elective surgery, uh, vascular surgery, cardiac, and looking at when TEG values were abnormal in a hypercoagulable phase, that they were predictive of perioperative venous thromboembolic complications, stroke, heart attack, uh, DVTs, PEs. And then Kashuk's paper comes out showing the hypercoagulability in surgery a, a few years ago. And that also kind of excited us about looking at it. And so we started looking at, at M&M, we have a very, very aggressive um, CTA protocol for PEs. We go after them, and, and I think it's probably partly responsible for why we have uh, the incidence of PEs we have is because they, they drop their SATs, they get tachycardic, and they get a CTA of the chest. And we find a lot, and it may not be all clinically significant. There are a lot of subsegmentals in there, I have to be honest. But if they have these processes, we were presenting them and looking at them in M&M, and when we, were, when we were doing so, we were seeing that they would have a very pronounced MA. Their maximal amplitude was very pronounced. Also of interest is that a lot of these were having two processes. They were hypocoagulable on the ACT and the, and the alpha sometimes, but then they would have this exaggerated MA, this very hypercoagulant MA. And when we look back at about 2,000 trauma patients at our center, looked at 30-day venous thromboembolic event rates, there was a tremendous increase in going from a maximal amplitude greater than 65 millimeters and greater than 72 millimeters, tremendous increase in risk of developing a VTE during that 30-day window. And it's really affected the care of our patients at our center. And so you can pick up people who are hypercoagulable based on their MA um, or the log derivation they're in. Do you titrate the dose of heparinoid given to that? You know, we haven't gotten to that point yet, and we're looking at doing that work. Um, and, and what you're getting at is, is something I think that Marty Schreiber in Portland's referred to as a, as a delta and looking at the, at the change in baseline versus after you add Lovenox, looking for a split point, looking for a, a change and an increase in their tag values. You're looking for a spacing out of that reaction time. And what he's advocated for is actually titrating the Lovenox dosing until you bump your delta to a certain significant value. We haven't gotten to that point yet, but we have gotten much more aggressive about our time to starting our low molecular weight heparins at our facility and more aggressive about our filter placement based on these values. Said differently, for the patients who are not a candidate for Lovenox, I guess is what you guys use, um, if they show a um, widened MA, an elevation of the MA, then you're more likely to put a prophylactic IVC filter in them. That is correct. I mean, obviously, we're looking for multiple risk factors. We've got someone with an elevated MA that just has, you know, uh, a pulmonary contusion and some rib fractures. Chances are they're not necessarily getting a filter. They've got an elevated MA and they've got non-weight-bearing bilateral lowers. They're getting a filter. Well, that's fascinating, and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, studies, and I'm sure you're going to publish a handful of them, uh, regarding um, use of this endpoint, the elevation of the MA um, and titration of uh, Lovenox dosing or earlier initiation of Lovenox dosing uh, and the uh, bleeding diathesis or whatnot. So 
We've been talking today with uh, Dr. Brian Cotton regarding causes and diagnosis of coagulopathy following trauma. I'd like to again thank Dr. Cotton for taking the time to share his views with us and compliment you, Dr. Holcomb, and the rest of your colleagues in your ongoing work in this field. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axarani.